Hello there. Welcome to my publication, Princess and the Pea, Survivor Edition, where we explore life's tests as we move along in our path towards healing from trauma. Thanks for being here. My name is Faith Christine Bergevin, and you can call me Faith. In today's podcast, we explore what happens after the burnout, after the initial recovery from trauma and the things big and small that hurt our progress towards healing. Listen to hear how I face the monster of not enough in a way that may seem surprising. Let's begin. After the burnout, on taming the monster. Last week's post had the strongest response since I started publishing essays a few weeks ago. Readers seem to resonate with the idea of internal chaos, what it means, how it can feel, and what it takes to harness the energy that burns from our own personal chaos. And so I was left with this terrible thought. How do I top it? The ego flew right in, asking how to be better, be more, offer more. I'd felt driven to write that essay, to take it to the ends of my exploration and provide helpful resources through citing research. It was a piece I'd been working on for a while, a piece I'd been completely immersed in that I was driven to share. And yet, once I turned my attention to this week's offering, I felt this internal, again, yes, internal push that is hard to achieve, all in service of one thought, how to improve or at least maintain a certain standard. <sighs> I took a breath. That's a lot of pressure. I'm not here to prove my worth. That's not my why, not even close. Do you do this? I wonder how many of us do. We're motivated on a particularly charmed day, driven to provide something exciting or helpful or fun or different, and then we do it and we are satisfied. We are satisfied with the work because it emerged so wonderfully from us that flow state creators get into, that writers yearn for in our souls, that artists work years to embody. Because it is about the work, about sharing and connecting with readers, audiences, we are happy, pleased. If it is well received, we are doubly pleased and want to do it again because it feels good. It feels good to know something we created mattered. Then we ask ourselves, What's next? We pressure ourselves for more. Maybe this pressure is not only coming from ourselves, our own internal pressure, the perfectionism or egoic desire to get another thing right. Maybe it's also coming from the external, from a society that keeps telling us we are not enough, whether it's with our social status, the look of our homes or bodies, our career, even our healing process. The message is we must always be doing more. That's what Instagram tells us, the commercials sell us, and work demands of us. You can do much, you have potential, you have something to offer if only you apply yourself. Be better next time, be more. Be more. <laughs> I find it interesting that as I greeted my computer screen this week, ready to write, I felt I had to do more, to be more. Why? 
what lurks inside. What is this thing pressuring me, pushing against my drive to write, interfering with my creative process? It feels like a monster, something I need to tame. This is not how I want to be. I started writing to share my knowledge, to connect with others who struggle with daily triggers from trauma or profound difficulties, to provide an outlet for the furious words that flow through me each day. I am not here to feed a voracious, crooked tooth monster sitting in the bottomless void howling at me to prove my worth. I'm not. But sometimes it feels that if I don't feed that gulping void, I will be deemed lazy. Oh, how I hate that word. It conjures an image of a sloppy looking person lying on the sofa, hand in a bag of chips and zoning out in front of the TV. No one wants to admit that it is us sometimes, that it is me when I have nothing left to give. Sometimes that reality is how we are coping with the stresses of life. And it doesn't make you lazy. Nope, I don't believe in lazy. Because the fact is that sometimes we need to do less, not more. Not less connection, but less effort. We cannot always be on. We cannot always create something better than what came before. We can try. We can have an intention to offer something useful or fun or purposeful, something that hopefully has value for someone else. But we cannot always one-up ourselves. We can only be us in the moment giving ourselves the freedom to create, to live, to share, no matter the rumblings coming from down deep telling us otherwise. Sometimes we are called to rest. Rest? Now? Who has time to rest? I cry to the void. Who has time not to? No matter how purposeful I am about my mission here, talking about trauma, I cannot always be in the chaos of my grief of my pain, of my recovery, of my healing. Sometimes healing requires saying stop. Someone recently said to me that we have to leave the past in the past and move on. It's not helpful to rehash things, he said. His philosophy is to find joy through living in the present. His ability to be spontaneous and live in the moment was part of what I appreciated about him, but also what pulled us apart. He helped me be in the moment. He helped me feel a relaxed joy. He helped me notice things I was too distracted by my recovery to notice. Things like the wildlife in our Oceanside town. He would notice how a family of otters swam, how they moved about the bay, how sometimes they'd be in the harbor and other times at the tip of the pier. He helped me see things I was too wrapped up in my trauma to see. I don't want to sink into my memories, into my traumas to be triggered. I want to live peacefully in the moment, enjoying my day-to-day -day life. I want to blissfully live and not be locked in the past. But triggers come. Life tests me. <laughs> And sometimes I fail miserably no matter my intention. Sometimes I need to talk about what's going on for me. I need to be in relationship with someone willing to listen who wants to be present with me even when the moment is not about joy, 
but about pain. And sometimes it is hard to put what's happening with me into words. So I need patience. Sometimes in my inability to articulate through words what is happening, it is confusing for those who don't understand and can lead to misunderstandings. Maybe it's a lot to ask for, but I need to live in what's real in the moment, not in denial that anything is happening, but in the centered presence of someone who can simply be with it, with me. Somewhere in here, there's a happy medium, a place where we can enjoy the present moment, but also acknowledge the triggers that happen in the here and now as a result of trauma from the past. There has got to be space for this, a space that doesn't live in denial nor stay rooted in despair. It is a space I long to be in, being present and feeling joy in the moment while allowing myself the grace to process whatever pain from the past remains. I believe it is here in this space that we find true freedom, freedom within ourselves and in relationship with others. I'm still figuring this one out. To what degree I can share this process with others remains to be seen as it is complex and requires a high level of trust in relationship. Trust is so easily broken and takes a lot to rebuild. People have to be willing to rebuild it and not everyone is. I did learn something from that man who wants to leave the past behind, no matter the harm unprocessed events can cause in the present. I learned that I need to make room for rest and play. Since I have had one thing on top of another for many years spanning way before the pandemic, it has been hard to see where I can breathe, where I can let go, where it is safe to stop. Because when I let myself stop a few years ago, when I let my guard down, a very bad thing happened. So my focus on healing and processing my trauma has a purpose. It protects me. It keeps me grounded by making sure bad things don't happen again. I know I don't have control over all bad things, but a part of me believes the more I learn, the more I process, the more I become aware and share my awareness through my writing with others, with you, the less likely another bad thing will happen. My hypervigilance keeps me safe. Life's test. Life says, Faith, here you are, writing, speaking, doing what you love, and you must rest. You must allow yourself to rest. Because after the burn of internal chaos, of recovery from trauma, comes a need to rest. Rest for the body, for the mind. Some might say I experienced burnout after the trauma. Could be. And honestly, it's all mixed in from the burnout of the pandemic, so who can really say? My approach to recovery has evolved over the years. Before, I would push and fight because I had to. I had to finish my degree. I had to find work. I had to figure out private practice during a pandemic. There was a lot I needed to push and fight for out of the necessity of survival. I could not rest, even though there were days I would collapse. So I would. Then I'd rise again like the mythical phoenix. Now my recovery path is gentler. It invites me to slow down 
and reflect on how I feel, to notice what I need in a given day, to notice when I have no more in me to give. Some days I have no choice. I have children's activities that must be planned or attended. I have work to complete. I have other requirements for the maintenance of my life, food shopping, chores, errands. But there are days when there is, when there is nothing required, nothing is mandated. Some of these days have me not getting up for a long time. My body asks for rest. My mind asks for peace. My heart asks for calm. And it is here in the now that I say to myself, I do not have to be more. I do not have to prove my worth. I don't have to be better today. I'm enough and it'll be okay. And you, how do you answer life's call? In this world of never ending information, never ending reminders of how we're not enough, not thin enough or rich enough or fit enough or healthy enough or successful enough, we must resist the pressure of more and not succumb to the external burn of society's mandates. I invite you to ponder these questions as you look at the tests life gives you in your own life. What external chaos has become a constant burn in your life? There may be something that feels like a burden, that feels mandatory, but may not be if you think about it for a moment. Is it a relationship that no longer nourishes you? A life task that drains you, but perhaps is not necessary? A job that feels so demanding that you are considering a new direction? Ask yourself, what monster lurks in you? What does it say? Is it from an internal pressure or is it one of the yelling monsters from outside? And when are you called to rest? Are there events, obligations, errands that you can say no to or delay? Consider when you need to rest. And finally, can we learn to abolish the idea that having to always strive to be better and if we're not trying, we're somehow lazy? Maybe we're not lazy whether it's from our internal chaos or external pressure, maybe we are simply burned out. Thank you for listening. Um, and now in true uh, traditional form, uh, I'm gonna reference the footnotes um, that I have in the essay. There are four of them this week. And um, yeah, this is what I do every time. So let's go back to the very beginning of the essay where I discuss the flow state. So this is something that, um, yeah, creators and artists talk about, um, people working on a project talk about, you know, being in the flow state. And um, I, I do have on the written newsletter portion, I do have a link to a very well-mined article called What is a State of Flow by Kendra Cherry. Um, so this is how they define flow state. Flow is a state of mind in which a person becomes fully immersed in an activity. Positive psychologist Mihail Chizenmihaili describes flow as a state of complete immersion in an activity. So, um, I did my best with the pronunciation. I apologize to Mihaly if I got that wrong. Um, 
But yeah, flow state is when we are completely immersed in our activity. And it, it feels kind of mystical to think about it. But those of us who have experienced it, you know, even for a brief moment in time, whether singing a song in the car or dancing or, um, you know, writing something or, you know, working on a project that motivates us, um, those of us who have experienced that, like it's a really great feeling, isn't it? And so I had that last week when I was working on, on the piece. And, you know, interestingly enough, in discussing flow state, I did get to it again this time. But, you know, I hesitate to even talk about it because it almost feels like jinxing it. And I don't want to jinx anything um, because it's, it's something we can't control, right? Like we can control our time that we spend, you know, working on something or, you know, trying to improve ourselves. But we can't really control that flow state. Um, I remember back in graduate school when we were all stressed out about writing a paper and doing this and doing that. There were so many tasks um, to complete. And I remember one of my instructors saying, well, we all have to follow the AOC method. And I was like, AOC, what the heck is he talking about? And he said, ass on chair. And he was right. Like, you can't write a paper you know, flittering around doing things. You have to be actually, your butt needs to be on the chair and you need to be working. And, and I think that's true for, I mean, obviously not for dancing, but um, for, for writing or for working on a project or working on a marketing plan. Like these are all things that we need to actually, you know, kind of sit down and think about and do. So yeah, that's, that's my comment on the first footnote, the flow state. Um, the second footnote, um, I use kind of a, a word that's not used very much. Uh, so this is back at the beginning when I talk about my ego. So talking about trying to be better, or to be more, or to offer more, right? And then I talk about, you know, this pressure that we have inside, the perfectionism or egoic desire to get another thing right. So egoic, let's see, um, it simply means pertaining to ego or pertaining to I. So egoic thoughts, motives, emotions, and behaviors are reactions in which I, me, and mine take center stage. An egoic reaction is one in which I'm centrally involved. So um, I link to a Psychology Today article written by Mark Leary, PhD, and it's called What is the Ego and Why is it so involved in my life? And he discusses the concept of ego. So I just used that term just because, you know, we often use the term ego kind of disparagingly, like, oh, my ego was involved. And, and, and in some ways it is because we are thinking from ourselves. And, you know, it's a tricky thing when you're in a creative process because we are kind of in the ego. Like, how do I, you know, do this thing that I want to do? But when it takes over, it can kind of overwhelm us and we lose the purpose, right? And that's where that internal pressure is, right? How do I be more? How do I become more? How do I be better? And that becomes kind of egoic and eye-centered as opposed to, you know, coming from a place of like, okay, how do I like connect in this way? Like when we all feel this internal pressure, right? Gotta be better, gotta be better, which is exhausting, right? So that was my uh, third, second footnote. Okay, my third footnote. Okay, um, this is getting more into trauma research and um, trauma therapy. So I quote from 
one of my university textbooks for my graduate training program. It's called Principles of Trauma Therapy, A Guide to Symptoms Evaluation and Treatment. It's by John Briere and Catherine Scott. Um, this is, I believe, 2015. It's pretty recent for these kinds of books. Yeah, 2015. So my reference here is talking about the bad thing that happened to me. So I've, I've written about that in other essays um, about when I let my guard down. And so in this particular section of my essay, I share about how I believe, or a part of me believes, the more I learn, the more I process, the more I become aware and share my awareness through writing, the less likely another bad thing will happen. And so part of that belief, like the more I learn, the more I process, the more I share, is actually based on research. So I'm gonna read a little bit from a chapter at the beginning of my textbook that kind of illuminates this. So it says that child abuse and neglect not only produces significant, sometimes enduring psychological dysfunction, but it is also associated with a greater likelihood of being sexually or physically assaulted later in life, often referred to as re-victimization. And here the authors uh, cite a couple of studies one by Claussen, Palish, and Egerwall in 2005, and one by Duckworth and Follett in 2011. And um, Breer and Scott go on to say, because it occurs early in life when the child's neurobiology may be especially vulnerable and enduring cognitive models about self, others, and the world in the future are being formed, child abuse and neglect is likely to constitute one of the greatest risk factors for later psychological difficulties of all traumatic events. And so like, that's a lot of information <laughs> for me to share here based on this essay, but I think it's really important to kind of point out that re-victimization is a thing, and it's not because of the victim's fault. It's not, you know, my fault I was in that situation. This, the studies that people are doing, that professional researchers in psychology and psychiatry are doing, is to um, understand, like, why is it someone ends up being a victim of intimate partner violence or rape or sexual assault? Why is that, right? And what the research is showing is that when there's childhood abuse and neglect, there's a greater likelihood of it happening just because of the way the neurobiology has been formed in a child's brain when it was developing, right? And it's so sometimes people can't really see the flags, you know, the red flags we're all supposed to be looking for, right? And that people get blamed for afterwards. So that's a whole other subject. But I, I just wanted to say that, that, you know, there is a purpose to learning more and having greater awareness. And it is self-protection when you have experienced childhood abuse or neglect or both. Um, that was a heavy one. That was my third footnote. Um, okay, the fourth and last footnote is about hypervigilance. So hypervigilance, okay, I have a complicated relationship with this word. Um, in my essay, so I, I say my hypervigilance keeps me safe, and it's just after the part where I talk about how my learning more and sharing more um, will hopefully prevent another bad thing happening. So the hypervigilance piece is very much um, a PTSD response, and, and I do link to an article, although like 
I'm a little not happy with it because it's very pathologizing of people who have PTSD, but I did find it interesting. So it's a very well-mined article. It's called Hypervigilance in PTSD and Other Disorders by Matthew Tall, PhD. Um, and he very much, you know, uses the ideas of, from the DSM, so that's the the mental disorders Bible that, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, you know, and even counselors, you know, kind of use for reference. And, and it's the body's way of protecting you from threatening situations initially, essentially, hypervigilance protects us, right? And it can occur, so I'm, I'm reading directly from his article just to say, I just wanna say that um, he writes, it can occur in an environment where you perceive an extreme threat but hypervigilance can also be you perceive a threat, but there isn't one. So like if you're walking late at night, you know, it makes sense to be hypervigilant. But sometimes you can be in what seems like a, a regular place where there wouldn't necessarily be any harm that could come to you. And you can be hypervigilant because uh, it is a symptom of PTSD. Um, but the reason I have a complicated relationship with it is it just... It just feels like a put down. It's like mm, when you've been hurt pretty, pretty badly or you've experienced some pretty severe trauma in your life to just kind of say, oh, you're so hypervigilant and you know, you should really change that. It's like really insulting because it's, it's like, no, I've actually developed this in order to protect myself because when I haven't been protected, you know, bad things have happened, as I've said. So, um, yeah, so... The, <laughs> Uh, maybe I'll talk about that more in a future um, piece, but I did want to address those four footnotes um, to just kind of, you know, for the people who are listening here and, and to address some important things that were raised, that I think are important, that were raised in this piece. And um, yeah, such concludes this week's installment for Princess and the Pea Survivor Edition. I thank you so much for being here and for listening and, you know, being committed to your own growth of healing wherever you are on the path. And, you know, I hope, you know, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple or any other of the providers that you'll put a comment in because um, that helps other people find, find this material who might benefit from it. Um, and also, um, I would love it if you would subscribe to my Substack. Um, my publication, Princess and the Pea. There's lots of other material on there that I've been writing and sharing via audio since mid-October. So I am new here, but um, I would love it if you would join me. Um, thanks again, and I hope you have a good day.